Well, for the last three weeks, our attention has been focused on God's lost and found department. <laughs> and if you're observant, you'll pick up on the main truth today uh, real shortly here. But the first two verses of this chapter tell us what motivated Jesus to give the four illustrations that make up these verses in Luke chapter 15. The enemies of Jesus were criticizing him because he received sinners. How could he? They are astounded that someone like Jesus would spend his time with those tax collectors and sinners. They are stunned that he would be with such wicked and evil people. In response, Jesus tells them four stories. And all these stories are designed to teach the same great truth. Every soul is precious to God. Now today we're going to look at the illustration of the lost son. And as Jesus moves through these stories, he is placing greater and greater emphasis upon the value of the thing lost. He's placing uh, this value on them. In the illustration of the lost sheep, there was one sheep out of a hundred missing. My mathematical mind says that's 1%. And in the illustration of the lost silver, there was one coin out of 10 missing. Again, that's 10%. In the illustration of the lost son, there is one son out of two missing, or 50%. And in the first two, two uh, stories, the objects missing were animal and material. In this illustration, the object missing is a human. Each time the object lost grows in value and importance. So Jesus is trying to tell us that every soul is precious to God. And even though this passage has been used mostly to speak to those who have walked away from God, there's another application of this passage which deals with lost things. Remember that the Lord is speaking about the salvation of lost souls, and He is trying to impress upon all those who read this passage that every soul is precious to God, even yours. Now, maybe you figured out the main point here today. <laughs> maybe you figured out the main point of this whole series I trust that you have realized as well, too, that you are precious to God. With this, uh, this whole, all this in mind, let's turn our attention to the message uh, contained in these verses 11 through 24 that we know of as the prodigal son. Now, maybe that there are lost ones in the service here today. Maybe those who are online joining us as well. And if so, let the Lord show you how precious you are to Him. And come to Him in salvation. He's offering this freely to you. It may be that there are saved ones here today and those who are joining us online as well too. And you're not maybe so as close to the Lord as you used to be. I hope you learn the truth this morning that you can come home again. All I ask is that you allow the Lord to speak to your hearts today and that you obey His word and His voice what he says to you today. So let's look into this passage and consider together the illustration of the lost son. Now, in these first couple verses, we encounter already how we see a harsh request. A harsh request. Look with me in verses 11 and 12. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, Give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. So the request of this younger son 
was for his share of the inheritance. And according to, to Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 21, he was entitled to one-third of his father's estate. His request was legal, since a man could divide his estate while he lived, but it certainly was a cruel request, a harsh request. It was a harsh request because it was a shocking request. A shocking request. When this boy asked for his father to divide the estate, he was in effect saying, I wish you were dead and have no more say in my life. I am tired of you and I want to be free from you and your control in my life. Now, few of us would ever say that to our dads. The lost man lives his life with just that attitude. He, he might as well say to God, I wish you were dead because he lives his life as if God was dead. It was a harsh request because also it was a selfish request. Notice what this boy said to his father. Give me, give me. His focus is on me. His life is all wrapped up within himself, and he cares for no one else, especially not the father. <laughs> but this father is so gracious. He could have refused and kicked the son out, but he doesn't. He merely does what his son asks him to do. He gives his boy what he asks for. Now, the Bible says, he, so he divided his property between them. Now, literally, this father was has poured his life into building his estate so that he might have something to hand down to his sons. And this father gave his son the result and sum total of his life and work up to that point. The younger son wanted what the father could give him, but he did not want the father. And in this, again, we have the picture of, of those who are lost. The lost person takes no thought for God at all. Their attitude toward God is, give me. They want, they want His air. <laughs> they want His food. They want His water. They want His time. They want His world, but they don't want Him involved in their lives. When God made man, He literally poured His life into man. In Genesis chapter 2, it tells us about that. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into His nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And every day... The people live upon the earth. They consume the resources that God created for them, yet they don't want Him in their lives. They want what He can give them, but they don't want Him. It's a tragedy. No wonder the Bible calls such people fools. <laughs> if you want to live your life like there is no God, He will allow you to do just that. If you want to take all that He can give you without acknowledging Him, He will let you do that too. But you need to know that the end of such a life will be a godless eternity. Is that what you want as the sum total of your life? <laughs> I hope not. Then in verses 13 through 16, we see also too, this is a hard reality. Hard reality. The son gets just what he wants, but soon he finds out that all that glitters is not gold. Verse 13, we see the reality of sin's pleasures. Look with me in Luke 15, verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. So he takes his father's grace, 
and he squanders it by living a wicked, self-indulgent life. And the words living, uh, wild living refer to a life totally given over to sinfulness, wickedness. In other words, when this boy left home, he also left behind all his moral restraints. How many times have we seen this with kids that they take off from mom and dad's home? And they want to do what they want to do, and finally I'm free. <laughs> the, the interesting thing is that they find themselves then confined by other things, employment, having to do this, having to make money, having to make a living, and they find themselves still, <laughs> people telling them what to do and all that. A little constrained still anyway. But all this to say is that, that this guy wanted to leave everything behind. He wanted his freedom. He wanted to get out there, and he thought that would be better. That would be better. And he lived in such a way as to gratify every whim and desire of the flesh. Now, did he have a good time? <laughs> well, yeah, he did. He had a great time. It's ridiculous for me to try and tell you that there is no pleasure in sin. If there was no pleasure in sin, it would not be tempting. <laughs> There's pleasure in sin. The Bible itself makes that statement for us in describing the faith of Moses. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 25, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. But notice the last phrase of that verse, for a short time. The changes in seasons come and go, don't they? No more evident than the, these last couple of weeks when we experienced snow a couple of weeks ago. And then we had almost 90-degree weather yesterday and Friday. <laughs> then we're back to a little bit of rain, aren't we? The seasons of life change as well. And when they do, that which brought you pleasure at one point will bring you pain instead. A life lived in the bottle, a life lived indulging sexual sins, a life lived for fleshly pleasure, a life lived for self. All these end up in the same place. And sure, yeah, there is pleasure for a short time. But is eternity without God and hell worth the short time spent in the pleasure of sin? Have you ever heard of how an Eskimo kills a wolf? I may have shared this story with you before. Maybe when I start in on it, you'll go, oh, yeah. <laughs> According to tradition... First, the Eskimo coats his knife blade with animal blood and allows it to freeze. He then adds layer after layer of blood until the blade is completely concealed by the frozen blood. The next, the hunter fixes his knife in the ground with the blade up. And when a wolf follows his sensitive nose to the source of the scent and discovers the bait, he licks it, tasting the fresh frozen blood. He begins to lick faster, more and more vigorously, lapping the blade until the sharp edge is bare. And feverishly now, harder and harder, the wolf licks the blade in the cold Arctic night, and his craving for blood becomes so great that the wolf does not notice the razor-sharp sting of the naked blade on his own tongue. Nor does he recognize the instant when his insatiable thirst is being satisfied by his own warm blood. His carnivorous appetite continues to crave more until in the morning light, the wolf is found dead in the snow. Many begin indulging in sin for the same reasons that the wolf begins licking the knife blade. It seems safe, seems delicious at first, but it doesn't satisfy. 
And more and more is desired, leading to a crisis or even death. Don't be fooled by the temptations of sin. Like the wolf, we can get away with it for a while. Eventually, though, its true character is revealed. Sin always leads to death and destruction. Always. So in verse 14, we also see there's the reality of sin's price. Sin's price. After he had, uh, in verse 14, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. Okay, so now he realizes what's going on, and now there's a famine. Oh boy, we're in trouble. So eventually his money ran out, and along with the money, he also lost the friends who had helped him spend it. The far country, the distant country, the land of wine, women, and song had become a land of weeping, worry, and sorrow. He found out too late that sin carries with it a very high price tag. So what is that price tag? Well, sin brings separation. Sin brings separation. This, this boy finds himself broke and alone and miles away from a father who had done nothing but love him. And still by his own actions, he is separated from that father by a wide gulf of sin, wide gulf of pride, and a wide gulf of ignorance as well. So it is with every person that is lost in sin. They are separated from God, as Isaiah 59 tells us. But God loves them, we know from John 3.16. But their sins stand between them and Him. What a waste and what a tragedy. Sin also brings sorrow. He began to be in need, Scripture tells us. Life had turned upside down for this boy. He thought he was doing great, thought he had all these things happening, everything was great, but when, when the music stopped, when the friends left, and when the money was all gone, this guy found out that he had, he had some needs that he could not meet. <laughs> His sin had robbed him of everything of value, and it left him hopeless and helpless in this far country. And that's how sin treats all its victims. It will promise you the world, but it can only deliver hopelessness, desolation, and death. Listen to what James talks, tells us about the, the sin in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. You see, it always pays to live for God, and it does. But did you know that it always pays to live for the devil? It pays dividends that you cannot even imagine. Broken lives, ruined marriages, shattered dreams, damaged trust, health problems, hopelessness, depression, defeat, and death. They're all part, all part of the pay package of sin. Someone accurately des describing sin has said this, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Now don't worry, sin always pays off. As Galatians chapter 6 verse 8 tells us, the one who sows to pleases sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. Sin always pays off. And then in verses 15 and 16 here in Luke chapter 15, we see the reality of sin's pain. Look with me in these verses. 
So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So because of his foolish decisions, this boy finds himself in a mess and he learns some valuable lessons. <laughs> First of all, that sin brings shame. Sin brings shame. And here's a Jewish boy who finds himself feeding the pigs. Not, not a really good kosher moment there. For a Jewish man to stoop to this level would mean that he had reached the very bottom of the barrel of life. He must have been filled with shame. And those who heard Jesus say this must have been shocked beyond belief. What? He's doing what? Those who, who allow sin to have its way in their lives always come to shame sooner or later. The shame of a wasted life, the shame of a wasted youth, the shame of wasted opportunities. But worst of all, there's the shame of a wasted eternity. It's a disgrace to sacrifice your finances, your fitness, and your family on the altar of sin and self-indulgence. What a shame to live that way and what a shame to die that way. It doesn't have to be that way. Sadly, many live like hell and don't seem to be bothered by it at all. There will come a day when they will be ashamed in His presence. Then sin also brings suffering. Sin brings suffering. Here is this guy, no home, no help, no hope. No one cares for him at all. He is starving. Would have taken the pig's food if he could have. He is suffering because of the choices he has made. Sin hasn't changed much. <laughs> it always brings suffering. Many suffer in this life because of the things they lose to sin. Health, wealth, family. But those who allow sin to play itself out to its ultimate conclusion find that hell is all that they have to look forward to at the end of the journey. Don't let that happen to you. Sin also brings sadness. No one cares whether this young man lives or dies. He's alone, lonely, he's hungry, he's broken. What a sad shape to be in. But for this young man, it was the first step in getting him home. Nothing is more sad than a life broken by sin. Nothing hurts as badly as seeing a life that was once filled with potential only to be destroyed by the harsh lifestyle of sin. It doesn't have to happen. But you might as well know today you can't go into the distant country and come back happy. No one ever wandered off into sin and came back glad they did. They all returned broken. They all returned defeated. And they returned humble. Just consider David in the Bible. Consider Samson as well. If that's what it takes to get you started toward home, then praise the Lord. And for some of you, you know people in your life that are like that. They've headed down the road away from you, away from God, and you're wondering, when are they going to come back? Well, they haven't hit rock bottom yet. And for some people, it's pretty deep. For others, not so deep. But each person 
who turns their back on God needs to hit that rock bottom before they realize, I need God. I've done wrong. I had it so good. If you have a prodigal son in your life right now, keep praying for that person. And as you pray for that person, realize that it could get worse for that person before it gets better. Because if that person does not reach rock bottom, realize that for his or her need for God, they'll still continue going down, down, deep into the pit with the pigs and, and all that. But pray, pray for that prodigal son in your life for the protection during that time, for the protection, because, boy, a lot of things can happen. And then in verses 17 through 20, we see a humble return. Now, this is the good news part, (laughs) that if you are praying for someone in your life, a prodigal son in your life, a prodigal person like that, um, there's this humble return. There will be a return. And And we see here the son's realization in verse 17. Follow along with me, Luke 15, verse 17. When he came to his senses, about time, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. When he came to his senses. This boy's entire time in the distant country had been a time of insanity. He hadn't been thinking clearly. Now the fog lifts and he remembers how good it had been at home with the father. And he remembers that even his father's servants were in better shape than he is. What a realization. Seeing where you are is always the first step in getting to some other place. A life lived in sin is a life of insanity. And why? Because the the sinner is blind to his condition and to his ultimate destination. They just keep moving forward. Quit licking the knife. Stop it. It's destroying you. If the devil came to sinners and said, now you're going to like this sin for a while, it's going to make you feel good, but eventually you're going to die, and when you do, you're going to burn in hell forever. He would lose a lot of business if he did it that way. (laughs) He doesn't do that. He tells people, it's fun. You'll love it. There are no consequences. You're going to live forever, so enjoy yourself. Live it up. The first step, And getting out of sin is to realize that you are in sin in the first place. (laughs) Realizing you had it so good before. When that is settled, you'll begin to see that God's servants are happy. They have hope. They are not trapped in the same bondage you, you are in, and you'll want to be set free as well. And that's the first step of getting out. Realizing your need. (laughs) Then in verses 18 and 19, we see the sons resolve. Follow with me in Luke 15, verses 18 and 19. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he makes his mind up to go home. He's tired of life in that far country. He longs for fellowship with the father. He wants to go where he can be loved, where he can be fed and cared for. He wants to go home. And even as he makes up his mind to go home, he realizes what he has done. He sees his own unworthiness, and he is willing to go home under any circumstances at all. He just wants out of that distant country and back in the Father's house. And that's that's the point where a prodigal son, daughter, 
needs to come to. Where they're so sick of where they're at. It's just not satisfying. There's just, and they realize that they're in a cycle of insanity as well. There's got to be something better. And there is. <laughs> there is. And you can see the change in this guy's life and what he says. He left, he left home saying, give me, give me. And he returns home saying, make me, make me. Before he didn't want to be under the father's authority. Now he's willing to be a slave if that's what it takes to go back home. Here we see a boy who is willing to confess his wrongs, repent of his sins, and return to his father. That's where every lost sinner has to get to before they will ever be saved. The Lord accomplishes this through what we call conviction. So much before, it was a hard heart that kept that boy from having that conviction hit him. But he got softened up by all the events that happened and brought him down and conviction laid upon his heart. The Lord sends that Spirit of God to show us our sins and reveal our impending judgment as well. The Spirit shows us where we are. The Spirit, the Spirit testifies in our, in our hearts and our lives where we're at. He takes the blinders off and lets us see our condition. And He points us to Jesus who can make all the difference in our lives. The key question is, will we follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit? <laughs> will that happen? Then in verse 20, in the first part of verse 20, we see the son's return. So he got up and went to his father. Got up and went to his father. So he gets up, he heads home. He doesn't know what will happen when he gets there. Maybe he'll be rejected. Maybe he'll be humiliated. He may even be put to death. But at this point, he does not care. He's tired of the distant country and he's going home. And that's what conviction will do for you. The Spirit of God will make the blackness and end of, and end of sin so real and, and the salvation Jesus offers so glorious that you'll do anything to get Him. You'll pay any price. You'll stop any sin. You'll embrace any truth just to be saved. Do you remember the feeling of God's conviction upon your life that day? When you came to Him broken, saying, I can't do it anymore. Don't want to do it anymore. I need help. I need you. You remember the fork in the road of your life and how He revealed the, the deadly result of one and how He pointed you to Jesus? And that's why you, you came. It seems the greater the sinner, the deeper the conviction. <laughs> But don't let the fact that you were raised in church and a good person cause you to doubt your salvation as if you needed to be saved out of a horribly destructive lifestyle of sin. If the Lord showed you your condition and, and pointed you to the Savior and you received Him by faith, then you have done all He requires to be saved. You are saved. Really, it doesn't matter out of what, but what matters is into what? Into His grace, into His mercy, It's all about leaving the distant country and coming home. And then in the second part of verse 20 through verse 24, 
we see this happy reunion going on. Happy reunion happening. And in the first two verses of this portion of Scripture, verses 20 and 21, we see that he found reception. He found reception. Look with me in verses 20 and 21. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. As this young man headed home, he didn't know what he might find there. What he found was incredible. He found a father who had been longing, looking, and and living for his son's return. He found a, a father filled with love and compassion and grace who received him and loved him back into fellowship. The father wouldn't even allow the son to finish his little speech that he had prepared. He just loved him back into a right relationship. So what did the father do? He ran. We see this. He ran. He, it's considered undignified for a man to run. Did you know that? During that time, it's undignified for a man to run. And the father ran. Why? Well, if you look in Deuteronomy chapter 21, it says this, If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and a mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a profligate and a drunkard. Basically wants to go his own way and indulge in all kinds of things. Then all the men of his town shall stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. Ooh, wow. So God runs to meet the sinner so, so quickly to, to extend mercy and put away danger. He literally places himself between us and his wrath. If the neighbors had cast stones, they would have struck the father first because the father was there already. That's what the doctrine of justification is all about. We are given a right standing with God. So this father ran out there as soon as he saw him, quickly before anyone else could get a hold of him. He also kissed him. The verb kissed is, the, is in the present tense. Not just one kiss, but continual kissing. Have you ever seen that happen before with someone greeting you? Like, oh, I love you. And maybe it's your grandchildren, maybe it's your kids, maybe it's your dog. Just loving, just kissing, kissing, kissing. Can't believe you're here now. The ultimate sign of acceptance by the Father. When we return home, the Father kisses us back into the family. The law demanded death, but grace extended the kiss of love and reconciliation. Because of forgiving grace, there was a feast instead of a funeral. And in verse 22, we see that this guy found restoration. Verse 22, it says, But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, and sandals on his feet. So when this boy came home, he had everything he, had everything he threw away, restored by the good grace of the father. A robe was put on him, which symbolizes purity. And here stands the son in the rags of his sins. He doesn't look like a child of this father, but the father orders the best of his robes to be brought and to be put on the son. And this robe 
covered all the stains and dirt of the, of the pig pen. This robe would make him look like the father. Imagine a servant walk, walking up who hadn't been there when the son returned home and seeing this boy from behind in the father's robe. He would naturally mistake him maybe for the father. Oh, there, there he is. This robe served to erase all the visible signs of this boy's sinful past. And when a sinner comes home, they also receive a robe from the Heavenly Father. This righteousness is not the righteousness of good works or of human goodness. You can't get there on your own. But this is the very righteousness of Jesus Christ given to those who receive Him by faith. When we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, all the pain and the stain of our past is forever washed away. Clean slate, forgiven. All the dirt and filth of life of sin is forever washed away from us. And there are times when the saints of God might be mistaken for their father. And I would hope so. And certainly they are viewed by their father as they had never been away from home at all. Forgiveness. Then there's the ring. The ring kind of symbolizes the privileges. After the robe came that ring. And the ring was a symbol of a sonship and authority. The one with the ring could speak for the father. The one with the ring had access to all that belonged to the Father. The one with the, with, with the Father's ring was in a position of great privilege. When old lost sinners repent of their sins and come home to the Father, they are given the great privilege of being recognized as His sons. They are given the privilege of speaking for the Father. They are allowed access to all that belongs to the Father as well. When we come to the Father... He opens the storehouses of His grace and gives us everything He has. What a privilege belongs to those who go home to the Father. And then there's the position, putting the shoes, the sandals on His feet. The Father calls for shoes to be brought for the feet of His Son. Only the slaves went barefoot, but sons wore shoes. This boy returned home, desired to be just a mere hired servant, but the father is determined to recognize his position as a son. In the boy's eyes, in the boy's eyes, he didn't even deserve to be a slave. But even lower, even a hired servant. The father, though, looked at him and said, This is my son. The father alone determines the position and worth of his children. Let me just remind you today that uh, you are not a nobody if you're saved by grace. We have this idea that we are supposed to think of ourselves as just uh, sinners saved by grace. That's true, but that's not the only thing. When, when, when you were saved by grace, you became a child of God. Child of God. He no longer sees you as a slave or as a sinner. He sees you as his darling child darling child whom He loves like He loves His only Son, Jesus. We are right to humble ourselves in His presence. Don't get me wrong on that. We should come to Him humbly. But uh, let's never forget that we are saved by grace, that it's the Father who determines our standing in the family and not us. And what I'm saying is this, don't let the devil or the flesh keep you down by telling, telling you that you are not worthy to be a child of God. If you are truly saved, you have been accepted by the Father in heaven, and He has called you His child. It sounds to me 
like you are in a special place of privilege. Then in verses 23 and 24, this boy found rejoicing. Look with me at those two verses. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. The fatted calf was kept for special occasions. The fatted calf was the father's way of sharing his joy with all, all those around. Instead of a wasted life, the father was celebrating a life redeemed and restored. Everything that was missing in the pig pen was given to him when he returned home. And so it is when a sinner returns home to God. There is rejoicing in heaven. There is rejoicing in the house of God, and there is rejoicing in the heart of the redeemed sinner. We find rejoicing when we come to the Lord. And in God's lost and found apartment, there's a lot of people who are lost, and when they're found, rejoicing happens. So where are you this morning? Are you lost in the distant country? Do you need to come home? If you do, there's no better time to do that than right now. The Heavenly Father is waiting to receive you, to clean you up, wrap you in His righteousness, and begin the celebration. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, today is the day of salvation for you. Today is the day of rejoicing for you because you're just a prayer away. If you have received Jesus as your Savior, how long has it been since you thank the Father for the gracious provision He has given you in Jesus? Do we thank Him? And I trust that we do daily. Maybe you have Jesus as your Savior, but you are away from the Father right now. You, you, you can come home. You can come home too. Wherever this message finds you today, I challenge you to get before the Lord right now and just do business with Him. If the Holy Spirit's speaking to your heart, prompting you in some way and saying, yeah, this is what's going on, can we do something about this? <laughs> Are you willing for me to do something about this in your life? And we need to be obedient, allowing the Holy Spirit to guide and direct and allow God to do His work in your life, whatever that might be. Only you and God know that, and only you and God can work through those things together. Will you? Will you come home? And have Don come on up. He's going to lead us in a couple songs here. As he does, let me pray. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would continue to be with each one of us here today. And Lord, as we've gone through this portion of the Scripture that's probably familiar to most of us, I pray, Lord, that you have spoken to our hearts now about our need for you. And maybe, Lord, there's something else that you're speaking to us about that I have not touched upon, but, Lord, you have. Whatever it might be, however you're prompting us, I pray, Lord, that we would respond in obedience, that we would realize our need for you. We can't do life without you, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that as we sing these songs, if we need to pray and realize the altar is open, we need to pray right where we're at, then great, whatever it might be. At least that we would just respond in obedience before you. Thank you, Lord, for your presence with us. And thank you, Lord, also, too, for your love 
and grace and mercy. Help us, Lord, to walk in that. Thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.